And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these words of, of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat, and as you do, uh, keep Revelation chapter 2 uh, right in front of you. And if you need a Bible and a seat uh, right in front of you, you'll find a Bible. Uh, get a copy of God's Word. As Jesus, uh, as Jesus would call people to follow him, he would often, he would often uh, accompany that call with, with, a, with a consideration that people consider the cost of what it means to follow him. Because he understood something, that to follow, to follow him, to follow Jesus, uh, to follow him in what he taught, and to follow him in what he, the way he called people to live, it actually took great courage. Courage that the Spirit of God would have to give to people. And the reason it takes courage to follow hard after Jesus in both what we believe and how we behave as Christians is because it's so easy to compromise our faith in the world in which we live. It's, it's so easy to compromise in belief. It's so easy to compromise in behavior. And so uh, this letter that we see written to this congregation in Pergamum, it addresses this very thing. How, how do we courageously follow after Christ without compromise? And now um, this begins with the same formula we find to begin each one of these addresses to each one of these congregations. And if you look at verse 12, it says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and then he says, write, write these things, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now in in order to understand a, a bit of the context of this letter, it's helpful to understand the context of the city. And I've said that every week, I'll say that every week, because we gotta understand a little bit about Pergamum and what Pergamum was like. And so from where we've been in Ephesus and in Smyrna, we go north now to the city of Pergamum. Now, remember, all of these letters are going to cities in, in what would have been considered Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And, and Pergamum was, um, was a very influential city in this regard. It was, it was considered an intellectual epicenter and a, and a religious epicenter. Uh, the, the library in Pergamum boasted like over 200,000 volumes of works, um, but it wasn't just intellectual, it, it was religious. Pergamum was a place where the polytheism of the culture was right in your face. Now, all of the cities we've talked about and all the cities we will talk about, polytheism shaped the culture, but, but the poly, polytheism 
wasn't more in your face than, than what you would have experienced in Pergamum. And by polytheism, I mean the worship of many gods. And so uh, in, in Pergamum, you, you would go to Pergamum uh, to, to, uh, to make your way to the, the altar, the shrine, or the temple of Zeus. And Zeus was considered the god of gods. And then on, on an Acropolis in the city, you can make your way up to this, to this high altar to, to the supposed god of gods. Uh, in Pergamum, uh, many people made their way to Pergamum uh, to, to go to a, the, the, the temple to Asclepius, or what was called the Asclepion, and this was a healing center, and it was a popular healing center. People from all over the known world at the time would make their way there for healing. Um, in, in Pergamum, the people would make their way to the temple or the altar to Athena, and Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And so if you needed wisdom, you found yourself in Pergamum and you'd make your way to Athena in order to, to have some wisdom imparted to you. But, but of all these things, nothing was more important in Pergamum than emperor worship. The, the imperial cult, or the worship of the emperor and everything that went with the worship of the emperor was centered right in Pergamum. And so people would make their way to a place called the Trajan and they would, they would worship the emperor they would, they would offer sacrifices to the emperor. They would, they would declare that the emperor was lord of lords and that the emperor was savior. And so this is the cultural climate of a city like Pergamum. And now imagine you're a Christian there. And you're a monotheist. You believe there's one God manifest in three persons. Uh, imagine you, you don't believe that the emperor is a lord of lords or a savior by any means, but who is your savior? Jesus. And so uh, for the most part, the Romans didn't actually care like who you worship so long as you worship the emperor as highest above all. And Christians rejected that and it made Pergamum a, a, a difficult place like all of these cities were for Christians to live. Now, it's it's... It's where we find this congregation in the midst of a city like this that the Lord writes to them, commending them for the courage they are showing to hold fast to the Lord. But it's in this letter that the Lord also has to call out some in the midst of the, uh, the congregation who have compromised in some ways on this. And so if Ephesus was the truth-lacking love church, and if Smyrna was the suffering yet rich church, Pergamum is the courageous yet compromising church. And, it, and it's my hope today that the word of God would speak to us and encourage our hearts so that we could walk out of here saying this, we will courageously conform to Christ without compromise. You with me, church? Like, I want to be able to say it. I want to be able to mean it. I want to be able to live it. And I want it to be a reality for our congregation that the Spirit of God would give us courage to say, Jesus, we will conform to you without compromise. And so uh, I, I think there's three clear parts to this letter that are going to help us to that end. Part one, we're going to look at the courage that Christ commends in his followers to stand strong in the face of cultural ways and cultural gods. 
In part two, we're going to look at the compromise, the compromise of this church in Pergamum. And I want to address some ways that I think we as believers in our culture today can be tempted to compromise or integrate things into our Christian walk that Jesus never intended us to integrate. And then three, part three, we're going to talk about the hope that is held out to those Christ calls conquerors and how on the other side of some heavy conviction we got to walk through in this later in this letter there is beautiful 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 hope and so that's what we want to see today but let's pray and ask for God's help as we do father uh, as your word goes forth help us Jesus help us you be at the center of it all you be lifted high your word go out clearly so God that we can drink it in and feast on it with our hearts in a way that it will help us believe and behave in the right way based on the truths of the gospel and the truth of sound doctrine that you give us. God, please help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at part one here, the courage that's commended. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. And now what's he say right after the comma? I know where you dwell, where, where what? Where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Again, what's it say? Where Satan dwells. Uh, first, first thing I want to just say up front is this. First point to write down. Jesus commends his people for countercultural courage to hold fast his name. It's a mouthful, but I want us to get every part of that. Let me say it again. Jesus commends his people. For what? For countercultural courage to hold fast his name. Now, let's unpack that point right there. Uh, the first thing we need to see in, in verse 13 is this reality that twice it is mentioned that Pergamum is the place where Satan's throne is or the place where Satan dwells. Now, we know based on the word that uh, uh, the Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Uh, but it seems that Jesus is acknowledging uh, some, some unique sense of his presence and power in the city of Pergamum. And of, of no other cities that are addressed in these letters uh, is this referred to. And, and we can talk about, okay, why, why is this considered the, the, the place of Satan's throne or the place where Satan dwells? And, you know, I just walked us through all the different fake gods in, in this polytheistic culture, but I really think at the heart of it is at the epicenter of all the worship in Pergamum was the worship of the emperor. And, and hear me now, church, um, our God is God alone. And he says in his word, he will not share his glory with anyone. He is not a respecter of persons. He, 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 you know, the whole culture is like, you worship the emperor. He's like, no, 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 you worship God alone. I, I don't share my glory with the emperor of Rome. And so like at the heart of that is just downright evil and wickedness. And because of that, I believe Pergamum is identified as the place where Satan's throne is, the place where Satan dwells. But in the midst of that, I mean, that is some heavy language there, that these Christians are living in a town in which Jesus would, would describe as the place of Satan's throne. He commends them for their courage. He says, um, in verse, uh, back in verse 13, you, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Uh, when, when the name of Christ is mentioned in the Bible, when we see the reference, you know, you did not deny my name or at the name of Jesus, what it's describing is the, the, the totality of the person. 
And so when we come across a passage in the Bible, like at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. What that tells us is that at the birth, the totality of the person of who Jesus is, every knee will one day bow. And so when he commends them, he says, you held fast my name. You held fast to the totality of who I am. And in doing so, you did not deny your faith. And then he addresses a specific instance in which it would have been very, very easy for these Christians to deny their faith. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know exactly what this is referring to because there, there's no other chapter and verse we can go to and that describes for us, hey, this is what it means of what the days of Antipas are. But what we do know based on this is it seems that one of, their, one of the Jesus followers in Pergamum was martyred, was murdered for his faithfulness to Christ. And, and, and if you look at some, um, uh, some Christian tradition or Christian history outside of the Bible, there is mention of an Antipas who was uh, put in place in the church in Pergamum as an overseer, as an elder, by the apostle John who was overseeing in Ephesus. And so John puts Antipas in place as an overseer in the church in Pergamum. And then the, this Christian uh, history, Christian tradition indicates that this Antipas was murdered or martyred for his faith, faith and 92 AD. Now, if, if what we're studying here is written about mid-90s AD, this is still fresh on the hearts and the minds of the Jesus followers. That one of them was murdered, potentially one of the overseers or elders in their church was murdered or martyred for his commitment to Jesus Christ. So he says, good job, church at Pergamum. You have held fast my name. You have not denied my faith. Even when one in your midst was murdered for their commitment, you have not denied me. And Jesus commends the courage. Now, um, this same commendation that we find here, what can we learn for us as we sit here 2,000 or so years later as a congregation of followers of Jesus. What does it look like for us to hold fast to Christ in the midst of culture? I just wanna highlight three things on this. Holding fast to Christ. One, holding fast to Christ means first and foremost this. We are bold with Christ's gospel. We are bold with Christ's gospel. Now, if I can, let's worship together over the reminder of what the gospel is. The gospel is a message, and the gospel message declares this reality that God himself came in the flesh, that he lived the perfect life you and I could not live, that he died a criminal's death that you and I deserve to die for our sin, that he was taken down off the cross and he was laid in a tomb and three days later he rose from the dead. We were just singing about that reality. And as, and as we were singing it today, I was like, God, fill my heart afresh with the awe of that statement. You rose from the dead. That can't ever get old for us. He really rose from the dead, which makes him the king and conqueror over sin and death. And then he appeared to his followers and he taught his followers how this whole book points to those very things that he did. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he invites us to himself by faith, not by works. 
He, he is so good that he invites, himself, he invites us to himself into a relationship the moment we believe in him. Because you can't earn your way there. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. But that's not the gospel message. The gospel message says Jesus has come and paid the penalty for your sin, has risen victorious over sin and death, and now invites you to himself by faith. We, we can't ever lose sight of that. We can't ever water that gospel down. We can't ever add other things into that gospel. We can't ever get our theology about the gospel off because if our theology about the gospel's wrong, then our doctrine will be wrong and our life will be wrong. And so as Jesus people holding fast in this culture, we believe in the gospel. And Paul tells us in his letters that that gospel message will be foolishness to people who are perishing. It will be, people will look at you and say, you are a fool. That is the most foolish thing you could ever believe. And we will say together, it is the most foolish thing that's changed my life forever. And we're bold with that. We share that. We believe the hope of the world is found in that message. And so we holding fast to Christ in this culture, we're bold with Christ's gospel. But the second thing I want to say is, is we're committed to Christ's word. We are word people. We are to be people of the word. We are to be people of the book. God in his goodness does not call us to gather here each week and go like, hey, what should we talk about? Hey, what, what should we, do? hey guys, what, 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 should, what do you want to talk about today? That sounds awful. Because if it was up to me to bring some wisdom every week, you all, you're not in a good place, okay? And if it was up for us to just collaborate on what we think we should talk about or what we believe some relative moral right or wrong is, we are toast. But you know what God has given us? Because he loves us so much, he's given us his word. And he's asked us to be people of the book. So what's the book say? And what does the book say is right and wrong? And what does the book say about how we should live? If we're going to hold fast courageously in the midst of this culture, we have to know this book. You have to know this book. You have to know the word of God. To use the age-old counterfeit illustration, how do counterfeiters know what's counterfeit? They know the real thing so well. And so like we live in a day and an age where you can do one thumb swipe on a phone and be bombarded by all different messages from all different worldviews. How do we know what's right? How do our kids know what's right? How do they know when they pull up a YouTube video if that is right or wrong, godly or not? We gotta know the word. We gotta teach the word. We gotta teach the word to our kids. We were in the living room, um, I'm off the cuff now, you always get this second service, it's the best. I, we were in the living room a couple, uh, about a week ago, and we had a, a kid's worship playlist playing on YouTube. And uh, this song came up and it was singing, and it was like, God made the world by his hands. Sounded something like that. God made the world by his hands. My six-year-old goes, wrong. I'm like, okay, bro. I said, why is that wrong? He said, God spoke the world. Let, let's go! There's some chest bumping in the living room there. <laughs> Sound six-year-old theology, baby. They, we, they gotta know. They gotta know. We gotta know. We gotta know. We gotta know what God says. I'm reading a book right now by J.I. Packer called God Has Spoken. So good. 
just rem- it's reminding me afresh over what we're holding when we're holding the word of God. We, know the, we gotta know the word of God so that we know the God of the word and what he says. So if we're gonna be courageous to hold fast, we, we're, we're bold with the Christ's gospel. We can't get that wrong. We're committed to Christ's word. We can't get that wrong. But then that flows down into this, that we're living out Christ's ways. If we're gonna be courageous in, in, in culture, Jesus has said, I don't just want hearers of the word, but I want what? I want doers. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so like we can get really good actually, and we, and we talked about this in the Ephesus sermon. We can get really good at learning our doctrine and amen, like yeah, let's be people of the word, but we gotta live it. Holy Spirit, help us. Because we're not powerful enough to live it without the help of the Holy Spirit. God, help us. We want to actually follow Jesus. We want the way Jesus lived to shape the way we live. And this is what it looks like for us to live courageously in the midst of culture. So we'll, we, will, we, will, we will courageously conform to Christ without compromise. Now, Jesus commends this congregation in a super hard place to live this out. He says, good job. You've held fast my name. You've not denied the faith. Even in a time where someone was murdered for their faith in Christ, you held fast. But now he's got to call something out. They've been, the congregation's been compromised. There's some in the midst of the congregation who have let some false teaching come in and they've been gripped by this false teaching. And, and, and listen, this is so important, that, that if there's a segment of the congregation gripped by false teaching, it means, it means the congregation's compromised. It means there's a weak point in the congregation, and Jesus is passionate about dealing with that because he loves his church too much to not deal with it. So look what he says here. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, you have some there, now, f- now follow this description, we'll, we'll unpack it, but you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I just want you to stop there. We got to understand what exactly is Christ calling out here? How, how have they compromised? Where's the compromise? Where's the following after of wrong doctrine that's leading to wrong living? And he, he starts to call them out by referring back to an Old Testament story or a story in the Hebrew scriptures that they would have, they would have known. It's the story of Balaam and Balak, and you can find this in Numbers 23 to 25. So just make a note of that for you to read later, Numbers 23 to 25. But, but this referred to this, this uh, deception of Balaam that put a stumbling block before God's people in that day that would lead them to Baal worship or to idol worship. And so Balaam, uh, you know, high level summary of the story, Balaam puts a stumbling block that ultimately would lead God's people in that day to idolatry and to immorality. 
Jesus uses that Old Testament reference to, to basically say, and you all the same. There is some in your congregation. There is some in your congregation, verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Just like Balaam put a stumbling block that would lead to idolatry and immorality, in your midst are people who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans who are putting a stumbling block of idolatry and immorality. Now, if you remember, this isn't the first time the Nicolaitans have been brought up in these letters. Uh, in the letter to Ephesus, Christ commends them that they hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, good job, you hate that teaching, I do too. Here he's got to deal with it because there's people in the church who are holding to their teaching. Now, again, I can't point us to a chapter and verse in the Bible that says, and the Nicolaitans believed X, Y, and Z. But from the best study of what we can try to piece together, it seemed the Nicolaitans were a group who wanted to integrate some of the Christian ways and teaching with the ways of idolatry of the culture and who taught that the body actually doesn't matter, just the soul. So the body can take part in whatever it wants and it won't affect the soul. And we all know that is absolute falsehood. It's not true. And so what that would lead to is a group of professing Christians who looked no different in the city are just partaking in all the idol worship stuff and living lives of rampant sexual immorality and all the while confessing Christ. And Christ is like, I hate that. That needs to be dealt with. Because those two things do not intermix. Idolatry and immorality with faithfulness to Christ. And this congregation has been compromised. So the second thing I want us to see is this. Jesus calls out people who compromise their faith with the ways and gods of culture. Guys, I know. Brothers and sisters, listen. In every one of these letters, Jesus has some convicting things to say. And as he calls out this congregation of his loved ones, there's things he wants us to hear and glean and reap as well. He wants us to examine. Where have we integrated the ways of Christ with some of the ways and gods of culture that he never intended to be integrated? that he never intended to come together in some Christian-y cocktail. If we were to really look at our priorities, and we were to really ask, what do I ultimately prioritize? Would that reveal to us any pockets of idolatry happening in our own life? And listen, it is so easy for me when I sit on Monday nights in our guys' breakout time and discipleship group, it's so easy to be like, yeah, I don't have any idols. Don't got any idols. No idolatry here. 
But I actually need hard and fast proof sometimes to try to get at it. And if you've been around church world at all, you'll often hear this. If, if, you, if we want to know some good things that we've made God things, just look at our time and our money. Our time and our money don't lie. I remember in, in college, um, I went to a school in Crawfordsville, Indiana, which meant the only restaurant you could go to is Applebee's. And at the end of one semester, I looked at the amount of money I spent at Applebee's, and it was terrifying. Our time and our money don't lie. So if you actually did an evaluation this week of time and money, what would that indicate about the priorities of your life? And then, are those priorities the good things God has asked you to prioritize, or have you made some good things even God things? How might we be compromising in the way we even think about being, thinking about how we prioritize our life? How might we be compromising in the way we, the way we think about what, we, what we're supposed to prize in life? And those two things are, go together, priorities and prizes. Have we bought into like some cultural current in any way that just said, you know, kind of the, the, the board game, the, the board game of life mentality. The more I end up with in the end, the, the greater winner I am. More money, more stuff at the end means I win. I know it's easy to say in church, no, I don't believe that. But really, like if we evaluated what we're prizing, what might that, what might that tell us or show us? And if we've compromised in any way and we're prizing the wrong things, what, that, what might that mean about what we're putting on the altar in order to get that prize? So I'll put on the altar my marriage if it means greater accomplishment in the workplace, which means greater money and stuff, which means greater acclaim. But Jesus has never asked that to be put on the altar. In fact, what if he's asking you to put on the altar the promotion or the advancement for the good of your marriage or the good of the health of your kids? How might we be compromising to just some ways of the world and how we think about the prizes of life? How might we be compromising to ways and gods of culture and how we think about purity? I think this is one of the biggest things that the enemy is doing. The enemy's doing really good work of deception amongst Christians. Because I think what he's allowed us to do for so long, and I know I've been guilty of this, is, is when we think about purity, sexual purity, what we often want to do is we want to look at our life compared to other people we know, and then we go, man, I feel really good about where we're at. I feel really good about where our relationship is compared to that. Or I feel really good about X, Y, or Z compared to that. But God has never asked us to lay our lives from a sexual purity standpoint next to other people. He's asked us to lay it next to his word. And so, you know, if you're fooling around on Saturday and coming to worship on Sunday, you're compromised. If you're texting someone during the week, you shouldn't be. And showing up on the weekend to worship, you're compromised. If you're using your phone for porn at night and your Bible in the morning, you're compromised. And listen to me. 
If any of those things are true, you, you, I, I know you probably didn't need to come to church today for me to heap more guilt on you about that. You probably already walked in with a convicted, guilty heart. My hope with the very next verse is not to heap more guilt on you, but to heap and doses the grace of God of what he calls you to if that is true. Because in the very next verse, God gives us a grace-based plan of what we are to do if we see compromise in our life in any way. And what does he say to do? Verse 16, therefore, what? Therefore, what? Repent. And y'all listen, depending on maybe how you grew up in church or what kind of churches you grew up in, depending on if you've come to church here for a long time, you've probably heard me get to a verse like this and say, repent! And there's a time and there's a place for that. But there's a time and place today for us to see the grace-based beauty of what God is calling us to when he calls us to repent. Think about that invitation, that a holy God would see us in all of that compromise and sin and would love us so much that he didn't say, okay, yeah, wow, you're an absolute train wreck. Instead, he says, I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back. And if you keep going that way, guess what? Here, I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back. The beauty of repentance we come across verses like this often and we feel, oh, repent, that's so heavy. It is heavy, it is convicting, but it's beautiful. We sing a song around here and one of the lines says, your loving kindness leads me to repentance. And so like if some of those areas of compromise I brought up a few minutes ago, if you're like feeling guilty and you're sitting in your seat wallowing in your sin, listen to me, wallowing in your sin will not lead you to greater victory this week. Do you want to know what will? Understanding the grace of Jesus Christ and the call to repentance that he's bestowed on you this morning. So feel the conviction. Say, yes, Spirit, I'll take all the conviction, but then I'm going to turn my eyes to the heaping dose of hope that is in the grace of God and the call to repent. That's what will lead us to change. That's what will lead us to victory. And Jesus understands this, and he says, therefore, repent. And then he warns, but what if we won't repent? What if people won't repent? What if people will continue in unrepentance, which is often a sign of just continuing in unbelief. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now remember, at the beginning of the letter, he identified himself as the one with the two-edged sword, the sharp two-edged sword, the one, the one whose word pierces, the one whose word has just judging power, the one whose word divides and discerns. It divides truth from error. It discerns what is right from what is wrong. And he says, if you will not repent, if this part of the congregation who's holding to these teachings will not repent, I will come war against them with the wrath of my word, my just word. Now imagine congregation, imagine church, imagine Redeemer. 
that there's part of our body who's holding to a teaching and, and pulled away in idolatry and immorality and the Lord comes and he deals with that with the just, with, his, with the wrath of his just word, how the pain of that would ripple effect throughout a whole congregation. How that would ripple effect to the whole family. And Jesus has given them an other way. No, don't let this happen. I'm extending grace to you in the form of repentance, repent. Now, the hope in all of this, okay, come, okay, come here, come on. Every letter, heavy conviction, I get it. But every letter abounding with a beautiful, hope-filled ending. So you, you can't miss that. You can't right now, you can't be so wallowing in your sin that you miss the hope Jesus gives at the end. Look at how he ends this. We're talking about part three now, conquerors. What does he say to those who he calls his conquerors? Uh, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Seems straightforward enough, right? And so we come to the end of this and we're looking for the hope and we know that every one of these letters ends with a word to conquerors. Those who are overcomers. Those who are hidden and resting in Christ and his conquering work working in and through them. What are the conquerors going to receive here? They are going to receive the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. What in the world does this mean? Um, I can't answer you definitively. The best scholars give a range of possible things of what this could mean. But when you come to passages like this in the Bible, you gotta, you gotta get your magnifying glass out and start to look for contextual clues to go, what, what might this mean? You look for contextual clues in the Word of God. You look for contextual clues uh, uh, that would have been true in the culture of which the Word of God is addressing. And so what do I believe is the best explanation of what the hidden manna and the white stone mean? I believe the hidden manna is a reference. If you remember, manna was bread from heaven, right? God provided it for the Israelites in their exodus out of Egypt and their wilderness wandering. God provides for them. God provides for them. What is it? Manna. It's the bread of heaven. I believe Jesus is saying to them at the end of this letter, hey, I know you are in the throes of it. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know the polytheism that's in your face and all the idle feasting that happens all over. And I know you're always on the outside looking in. I know in the midst of your courage, you're never at the table for those idle feasts, or if you are, you're compromising. But here's what I wanna to say to you, conqueror. Though you're on the outside looking in at those feasts of fake gods, one day you will be with me in my presence, eating the bread that comes from God with the bread of life, who is Jesus. One day you'll be at the feast with me. You will literally be at the table with the bread of life, eating the bread of God. But how do you get there? 
an invitation. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In this day, really powerful people, uh, let's say if the emperor was going to throw a feast or throw a party, he would, he would inscribe your name on a white stone, often marble. You'd go to the mailbox. They had mailboxes in Pergamum then. You'd go to the mailbox, and in the mailbox would be an invitation from a powerful person or from the emperor to his feast or to his party with your name engraved on a white stone or a white piece of marble. Imagine going to your mailbox, getting a marble, real marble stone invitation. You'd be like, I am someone. We've arrived. One time we went to the mailbox, we got an invitation to a wedding in a metal box. As you opened the box, it sang to you. Eric and I were like, wow, we are losers. Like, people just got paper for our wedding. But, but this, was, this was a big deal. Marble stone engraved name from the emperor, from the Lord of Lords, from the Savior. Jesus says, I know, you never get one of those, but guess what? I've extended you the white stone invitation. And it doesn't just have your name, and it's got a new name. It's got a redeemed name on it. Because when I redeem people, I give them a new name that matches a new nature. So one day, one day, courageous ones, all your outside looking in to the ways and gods of culture will so pay off as you sit at the table eating the bread of God with the bread of life with the invitation of a new name that describes a new nature sitting in front of you. It's worth it. It's worth it. Last thing, Jesus gives his conquerors an invitation to the feast and his presence. So church, if you can, stand to your feet. I want to focus in on that presence. And I want us to walk out of here thinking about being at that table in his presence. And I want, us, I want us to think about something all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. In Pergamum, in order to experience the, what they thought the presence was of the God of gods, they would make their way to Zeus's altar, his temple. Or in Pergamum, in order to get healing, they thought they had to go to the Asclepion. Or in Pergamum, in order to get wisdom, they thought they had to go to Athena. Or in Pergamum, in order to worship the Lord of Lords, the Savior, they thought they had to go to the Trajan and worship the emperor. Jesus says, no, 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 I invite you to one table with one Savior who is God of gods, who is the healer, who is the epitome of the wisdom of God, and who truly is Lord of Lords. Let that inform us this week as we walk out those doors. And as Satan throws a lure in front of us and idols start to look shiny and, oh, maybe that is power. Maybe that, maybe that is wisdom. Maybe that is pleasure. Maybe that is whatever. Remember, all of it's fake and none of it's worth it. Eyes on the table. With the manna of God in front of us, with the bread of life there, with the invitation right there, he is the epitome of true God of gods, healer, wisdom, 
Lord of lords and Savior. Don't ever forget it. Redeemer, in light of that, you're loved, you're sent. We'll see you right here next Sunday.